0: Well, even as we've had kids dedicated in each campus at each service today, it begs a question maybe for all of us at whatever phase of life we're in, at that season when you begin to have children, and most of us will, you begin to ask, what do I wish for my kids? And very often as parents, we wish for great lives for our kids, don't we? We wish things would go well. In fact, it's easy to say, I really wish it would be a pain-free life. I don't want them to have difficulty or struggle. I want things to go well for them. Or, or if I am a little more balanced, I go, well, I don't want everything to go well for them. I, I want there to be enough difficulty that it keeps them humble and enough goodness that they don't lose hope and they have joy and, and enough weakness that they depend and look to God and have great marriages and great lives. We wish for good things, don't we? And so today, I want us to consider that for a minute because I'm going to ask you this question, is that really the way life goes and is it really the way we wish things would happen? it's kind of a difficult thing. And I'm going to talk about something today as we're in the middle of the series that I think is a little harder. We've titled this series, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Emotional. And the reason we titled it this way is we know most of us appear to be normal, everyday people, mature, good, wonderful, godly people. And then circumstances happen and our emotions get the best of us. And man, something changes on how we live. Or maybe it's how other people live but we understand that emotions wreak havoc on maturity. And what we've been dealing with in this series, if you haven't been with us, is the idea that growing up in Christ, and part of our mission, we say, is growing together in Christ after we discover his radical love means we mature. And what we've said in this series is it's not something we separate. We don't spiritually mature and mentally mature, but not emotionally mature. And yet emotional maturity is really difficult And it's been something that the church has often missed and society misses. And so today we're going to look at a particular facet of the difficulties of life. And I think even fittingly, I remember we were first doing this, I'm like, so on child dedication, I'm going to look at grief and loss. You're welcome. (laughs) And yet I think about it as something even from an early age, appropriately, we need to begin to prepare for. Because life is not all easy and wonderful and good, is it? So let me take you back to one of my early experiences with things that were difficult. I had graduated from uh, Hope and I was in my first uh, role in social work. I entered into this job, it was, uh, it was a combination in foster care with, with case management and clinical work. So you provided treatment and case management. I would have 10 teenagers, every one of them had been through chronic and difficult kinds of abuse situations. Things, if I shared the detail of it, just your heart would break. And the first week, I would meet with each one of them with their previous worker. She was transitioning out. It was kind of a place for them to see her and have a, a wonderful goodbye and then have me enter in. And fascinating, the first one I went to, we picked up this young high school kid. Actually, he was attending Grand Haven High School at the time. We picked him up and drove him back to his, his foster home. And she would tell me all the great things going on in his life. He'd really been making some transformation. We got into the home and found out he had just blown up at school all week and the, and the foster parents blew up about that. And then he blew up at her and blew up at me and ran out. I thought, well, welcome to social work. It was difficult. Went to the next one. And oddly enough, it was a different circumstance. This was a young teenage girl. and went in with her to her home and she and a, a roommate began to blow up at one another and they had been doing fine, came out of nowhere. And this social worker was leaving in her, I think, cruelness, she would say wisdom, turns to me and goes, well, what do you think we should do about this beat? Now, I haven't dealt with a single situation. It's all been kind of philosophical at this point. What am I going to do? And I wish I could share the details, but you don't want to know. So in my wisdom, I think in this moment, I believe God gave me this. I said to the foster mother, hey, what do you think we should do? Now she was smart and she knew what to do. So I appeared wise because I asked her for help because I had no idea what to do. Now what followed were eight more blow-ups. And it wouldn't be till years later I realized this. But in essence, what was happening in every situation was these young adolescents had someone they were very close to, their worker. And they were having to say goodbye to someone that they cared about and couldn't face another loss. And then they had to say hello to someone they didn't know, nor were sure they wanted to know. Now I tell you that because in essence, that is grief. When we hit loss we have to say goodbye to what is wonderful and known, and say hello to what is unknown and unfamiliar. And today we're gonna look into what it means to deal and grow through grief. And believe me, this is something we have to get acclimated to in our life, and it is very contradictory to our culture, isn't it? I mean, come on, what, what do we say about life here? In fact, you know what, if you're blessed, life's good and it's without problems. I am so blessed. I mean, come on, great family? great job. I'm great. It's just good. Didn't Jesus just want things to be good? That's how we kind of perceive life. Let me just take you into the scriptures, and we'll go through a few. This is one that's, it's called Ecclesiastes. It's written by a man named Solomon. In the midst of what's going on, he's had everything you can imagine, and he kind of speaks of how all these things he's run after are like a chasing in the wind. He calls them meaningless, And he begins in one of the parts of this letter to describe different things in life, how everything has its own season. Everything has its own circumstance. You know, like there's a time to sow and a time to reap. And then he says this in the midst of this series of them. He says there's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. In other words, grief and loss are part of life and joy and happiness are part of life. But let's be clear, we only like joy and happiness. Isn't that true of us today? I mean, this is one of the things that breaks my heart, but this is common for Christians in our culture. When life becomes difficult, we say God must not be good. In its worst iteration, this is an atheistic argument, they say if God's good and if he's powerful, he'd make life easy and wonderful. So if it's not easy and wonderful, he's either not powerful or not good. Gotcha, he can't be real. That's not true. But it is a false premise, and it's one we live in our culture, particularly today. And what I want to invite you into is what it might look like to say goodbye and say hello, to live in sorrow and live in hope. And so with that, we're going to look at one particular letter that Paul writes to the early church. If you're not familiar with Paul, Paul is a man that was named Saul from birth. He was a Israelite and a Pharisee of Pharisees, he was very committed to the Jewish way. And when Jesus rose from the dead and people were talking about it, Saul wanted that not to keep going. So he began to persecute Christians. We today would call him a terrorist. He went after them, marked, put them in prison, killed them, did all sorts of horrible things. And then ultimately, he has this defining moment where God reveals himself. Jesus asks why he's persecuting him mystically through a vision. And all sorts of other things happen I can't get into. And he turns and becomes this great champion for Christianity. And he begins to go all throughout Asia Minor to this Greco-Roman culture and just communicate about who Jesus is. And they begin to see the power of God as he communicates it, by the way. And then after these churches begin to grow in these cities, he writes letters back to them to give them good advice as they're struggling. So this is one of those letters to a church in Corinth. And listen to how he speaks about life. He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. In other words, we are vulnerable human beings in these broken jars. And he says, to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. In other words, God's gonna do something great in our frailty and vulnerability. And then he speaks of how life is. We're hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but not abandoned. We're struck down, but not destroyed. Does that sound like a fun, easy life? No. But let me flip it a different way. We're back to raising kids for a minute. What do you think are the most important things you want for your kids? And I would, I'll venture this to you. I think one of the ultimate things we want is for our kids to be people of integrity, to have character. Wouldn't we agree? We would probably say of all the things they could have, I would rather them struggle financially and have great integrity than be very wealthy and struggle. I would rather them have character than have a horrible marriage and horrible family life pretending, but have it appear good. I want them to have character. Now there's a biblical prescription for character. And it's not like it's the way it, it's just describing it. Paul writes this in Romans. This is what he says, how character is formed. Suffering. 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 How many of us would opt for that? But he says suffering produces perseverance. And perseverance produces character. And character, ultimately, through the power of the Spirit, brings hope. In other words, we want, we want character in our lives and the lives of those we raise up, and yet our culture says we want ease and we want things to be pain-free. I just want you to see the battle that's going on in our lives. That's the reality of it, and then what Paul says after this, I think beautifully gives us a picture of how we live this out and what this looks like. And I think what's missing today, he says this, we always carry around in our body, the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal bodies. In other words, you and I live in the death of Jesus in saying goodbye, and we live in the life of Jesus in saying hello. In a sense, we can describe grief as death and resurrection. And here's the problem with how we handle grief today. We only want to talk about resurrection. I'll give you a common thing that happens when, and this is my own doing of funerals, and I don't mean this as a disparaging there are wonderful things in it, but what misses, it concerns me. Oftentimes what I'll hear is, hey, we're having a funeral. Let's make this a celebration, which is great. We should celebrate the life. But translates, and that's code for let's not talk about what's difficult. Let's not talk about the grief. I only want to celebrate. Do you know how long our works typically give us out of grief to grieve? If you're in a good place, three days. No problem. No problem. I just lost someone very close to me. Three days, I'm good to go. Let me get back at the shop. I, I want you to understand, we don't know how to grieve in our culture. We immediately want to move to resurrection. And then we say things that make it worse. Have you ever had somebody who loses someone young in their family? They go, hey, you shouldn't feel bad. God must have needed an angel. Oh, I feel better already. I'm sure God needed that. I don't know why I feel sad. Why would I feel sad? You just took all that pain away. I've heard people say things like, God works everything together for good for those who love him. That's true. I don't feel it right now, but thanks. Took away my pain today. You're getting a picture for me? In Jesus' day, in the Jewish culture, it's commonly today called Shiva. They spent the first part of the time just sitting by the family, not saying a word. For those early weeks, they were just present because guess what people need when they're in grief? Connection. That's all they need. And over the course of a year, they had formal grief, where very slowly, people began to re-enter the community of faith. And when they first entered, they didn't do anything. Have you ever seen this? Someone's in grief. Do you know that when people are in grief, they don't enjoy singing about the greatness of God a lot of times? They don't feel it. It's okay. We sing it over them. But man, should they be able to sit in there and have sorrow? You bet they should. I, I want you to get a picture for grief is much bigger than we give it, and we don't ever want to acknowledge it. We want people to move on from it. What do we regularly ask? Are you okay? Oh, yeah, I think they're okay. That's code for it. Have they not acted like they're grieving anymore so we can get on with it and feel good again? And that's other people's grief. That's not even our own. Imagine the mix we get into. And I'm talking specifically now about death, which is the easiest one that we recognize. But in case you don't know, grief is a lot of other pieces. I told you about these young teenagers I worked with and what I discovered later in this was not that they were so deeply grieved over their caseworker leaving, but that was just another unprocessed grief in their life. And there were lots of them. For example, almost all of them had been abused to such a degree that they'd just lost their innocence in childhood. Do you know they needed to grieve the loss of their innocence in childhood? They'd lost their parents who hadn't ever really parented them, and they'd lost the reality of what it looked like to be a kid and have parents. They'd lost home after home after home because they were moved from one place to another to another. It was goodbye and hello, goodbye and hello, goodbye and hello. And by the time they got to a caseworker going, it might have been the fifth, and it was just another loss piled on And I tell you that because we can say this about people who've been through more difficulty, but if you haven't learned to process grief and you haven't learned to live in the death of Jesus, I guarantee you it's troubling to even learn how to live in the resurrection of Jesus. If we can't say goodbye, it's hard to say hello. We just try to keep repressing and moving on. And make no mistake, losses are in lots of areas. One of the aches I have are for people that go through divorce because divorce is a grief that doesn't go away. You don't get to just say goodbye and it's over. Especially if you've had kids, you will continue to relate to that person the rest of your life. And you will be reminded of the hurt and the rejection throughout your life. You will grieve again and again and again. Think of the people, child dedication a beautiful day. I love that we have it, I love dedicating kids. We have people among us who have not been able to have kids. Do you think it's a painful day? when they sit in this and they are reminded as their friends start to have kids, as they see kids doing other things, it just hits them differently. Or the person as we talk about families that feels like I'm not finding someone and I'm alone. And the list goes on and on and on. People grieve in the midst and lose things in the midst of jobs. Many of us have been through job loss. Do you know that's grief? That you grieve the loss of identity and job when you lose something like that? When we move, do you know that can often be grief? Grief is good and bad in this, and we grieve different things. I was remembering today, um, it was 1994, we went through a lot of losses, and one of them was we had a baby pass away at 20 weeks of gestation, and my wife had to deliver Dominique, this little girl, as a stillborn. And not only did I grieve the loss of a child, I grieved the loss of invulnerability, because I realized we're vulnerable. I didn't know that before, but I couldn't pretend we weren't. And, and make no mistake, we grieve good things too. Do you know that when great things happen, the big three often are, that people talk about are moving to a new city, getting a new job, and, uh, and basically getting married. And people often do those three together. And they're great, aren't they? I mean, come on, good days. But guess what? There's also loss in every one of those. And we don't act like we should grieve those things. When you get married, you lose your singleness. When you have kids, do you know sometimes you lose the freedom of marriage? Have you ever seen a couple when they suddenly have kids and think, I forgot who you are and what my life would be like for the next 20 years? It's different, but we don't acknowledge those things. Or even think of how unique grief is for someone. I thought about people who've had to say goodbye to someone through a long illness, and they're with them every day of it and they've been grieving all through that. And suddenly when the person passes, they're they're grieved, but they've been grieving, and they're actually relieved. And then what do they feel? Guilty for being relieved. Who wouldn't be relieved? But we don't even have the skill set to walk with them because we miss how significant it is to walk with them. And yet that's part of grief. Can you see how when we don't deal with this, what it does in our lives, trying to mature in Christ? because we have all sorts of mixed feelings that we don't think we're supposed to have. You know, one of the hardest griefs I see is when a long married couple, one of them passes, and they had a rich marriage. And that person is never over it. And I don't wish they were over it. In fact, to me, it's the sweetness of 50 years of marriage or whatever it is. They feel a gap. They will live in some sense of sadness until eternity comes. It's okay. It's part of carrying the death and the life of Jesus. And we say, are you better yet? I want you to get a picture that this is something we've lost in the church. We carry the death of Jesus, we say goodbye, and we carry the resurrection of Jesus, we say hello. We can't have resurrection without death. Jesus says these beautiful words to us. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. If you don't mourn, you can't be comforted and I think it's hard for us to mourn. Hey, I was thinking about this recently. Uh, Jane and I were out to dinner with some very close, a very close couple to us, and talking about some grief. And this is the crazy thing about grief. You know you can't decide when you'll grieve. You don't get to go, live well, I've scheduled two hours on Thursday. No one will be around, I will deal with it then. And then I'll be back and no one will see. So we're out to dinner and I get asked a question and the grief begins to well up and I start crying pretty strongly. I got the ugly face and all that. And the waitress decides, this is a good time to come up and see how dinner's going. <laughs> Not aware of what I'm doing. So in my incredible astuteness, I take my menu and put it over here because she can't see behind me. See how well I'm hiding it? Not at all. It didn't work just in case you wondered. And all I could think of was I couldn't decide when grief would come out. I just had to kind of let it be when it was. And I think sometimes we forget that. We forget to make space and be okay with that because Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. I wanna tell you three simple things I think that will help. And the first is that you just embrace grief. Don't try to decide if it's all good or all bad, and make no mistake, there will be ambivalence in all kinds of grief. There will be great things that still bring you sorrow, there will be difficult things that you find relief in the midst of, and embracing grief means we actually let ourselves mourn. One of the things I've discovered is it takes a lot more energy to repress my emotions than it does to let them out. I just get tired when I'm done. But all of us know, you know God made us to cry, right? So when you think, I shouldn't cry, tell yourself, you're made in the image of God, go for it. One of the best things, one of the best images I love in Jesus' story and his life is Lazarus is this friend of his, deep, close friend. He gets word that he's sick, and he says, we're going to wait a couple days, we'll go see him. And by the time he gets there, Lazarus has died. Now, Jesus is about to resurrect him, and he knows that. So what would we say in that? Hey, don't cry guys, I'm about to fix it. Just let go. Just don't wail. Watch what I'm gonna do. Guess what Jesus does when he gets there? By the way, it's the shortest verse in all the scripture. So if you want to memorize this, you will now memorize a passage. Two words. Jesus wept, sobbed, cried. Even though he knew resurrection would come and not even long after, he entered grief. I find that incredibly comforting. The God of the universe Knowing good would come still entered pain. And we need to quit telling ourselves, well, eternity's coming, so there's no need for it. Yes, eternity gives hope out of it, but the grief is still there. Embrace grief. Let me give you the second part of this. Wait in uncertainty. Just curiosity, how many of you love to make sure that you know what's coming and you keep control of all that's coming? You're not a control freak, you're adequately controlling your environment. Show of hands. Yep, me too. Do you know the crazy thing about pain in life? You can't control it. You can't control when it comes. You can't control when it goes. You can't even control how you'll process it. So guess what happens in grief? We discover that we need God. Because things will happen you can't fix and you can't deal with. They just will. One of my favorite stories uh, in all of Scripture is the story of Job. And it's not a fun story. It's not like I'm a, I just love pain. But it's a powerful story. Job, uh, in one day, he's this guy that walks with God. It says he's righteous. God even talks about that. He has everything he could want. Very wealthy. His life is going wonderfully. Great marriage. Great family great fruitfulness. In one day, he loses everything. Loses his kids, loses his homes, loses his livelihood, and his health actually gets all messed up too. Everything's gone in one day. One really well-known pastor from antiquity said, Job loses in one day what our whole life will be over the course of time. And in case you don't realize this, I hate to be a bearer of bad news, but you know over the course of your life you'll lose everything. Like at the end, you end with nothing. I. I you're welcome. I thought you'd enjoy that. But, but Job's story is the story of humanity in one micro shot. And what happens is powerful because he lives and waits in uncertainty. All of his friends begin to tell him it's his fault. Hey, Job, you must have done something wrong. Clearly, God doesn't do things to people unless they do something wrong. What's the matter with you? And the whole book is this interaction of frustration and conflict back and forth. And Job finally begins to cry out to God, which this is what I love about uncertainty. He doesn't get it, and he's like, God, what did you do? What's happening? In essence, it's like this. This is who he knows God to be, and this is what his experience is saying. There's a mess between, I think God's good, but my life is telling me it doesn't add up anymore. And the crazy part is how God responds to him. Like people always talk about the end because things get restored, but I love the part where God talks to him and it doesn't help, you would think. Because basically God goes, hey, Job, I just got to ask, were you there when I marked out the four corners of the earth? Now, what's your answer to that? Oh, Job, were you there when I told the waters to push back? Were you there when I brought the gazelle? He begins to go through all of creation. And I don't view that as a harsh commentary. What I view it as saying this, hey, Job, what I've done, there's no way you can understand it's just too big for you. Even if I were to explain what was going on, it's not gonna help. And let, make no mistake with grief, you will not find an answer that just makes it all tie a bow and feel better. Oh, it's like what I said when people do that. Well, God must have had a need for that. Like, no, he doesn't. God's good all the time. He's good without that. God's aching with you. What I love is what Job said afterwards. Before, I had heard of you, but now I see you. This is what happened. This is who he, saw, who he thought God to be. This is his experience, and then when God spoke, he went, I'm seeing something new about God. It didn't answer a single thing in my grief. But in this uncertainty, something changed because my connection with him changed. Wow. That's what God does in grief. He'll never fix it, so you'll regain control. He'll never take away and make the pain be unfelt but something will change in how you relate in the midst of it. And it brings us to resurrection because God will bring new life out of it. I don't care what phase of life you're in, God will bring new life out of grief. If we will mourn, if we will trust him and wrestle with him in uncertainty, God does bring hope. And that is the beauty of the resurrection because death is never the end. There is hope. But God will bring hope even out of the loss. God will bring new things out of it for all of us. We just can't have resurrection without death. We can't have hope without loss. We can't say hello without saying goodbye. So the way I want to finish this part of the service is to just pray for us. I'm willing to bet that just talking about this stirs you. We all have different losses. Maybe you've dealt with or haven't. Maybe some of you have losses that have piled up over time. And you're going, wow, there's a lifelong set of processes and things I haven't grieved. Maybe for others, there'll be positive things, but even in all the good that's come, you've never said goodbye or ached over the things you've lost. Maybe there's a particular loss that even as I shared, that one hit. I don't know what it is, but to begin to let us let the Holy Spirit just meet us in any place of grief. And for those of you who haven't been through any loss, you should give thanks that it's been good so far. I just don't want you to have this shallow view that life is gonna be that way and having it that way is the best thing. Because I'm telling you, God makes deeper people and more powerful people through the deepness and death, struggling of death and loss. That's how we grow. Suffering, perseverance, character, Hope from death to resurrection. Goodbye to hello. Let me pray for us. Lord, I ask that you would meet each person where they need you today. I don't pretend to know what they may have left apart, what they've tried to say, I just want to be better and not feel but I pray as your spirit brings waves of grief that they'd embrace it. God, I pray as we let go and live in uncertainty that you'd bring new life out of it. And I just pray, Lord, for all of us to grow together in Christ. That when difficult things come, it would not rattle us because we can't believe it. Instead, it would cause us to enter in with you. That we would carry the death of Jesus and carry the resurrection of Jesus. So God, mature us. Help us to walk together. Help us to look to each other and how we can better encourage and help each other in grief and not say, get over it. And Lord, for any in uncertainty right now, let them move from hearing of you to seeing you. And God, show us new life out of our aches. I pray this in your name. Amen.